Welcome to Reefer the Reefer the Podcast. I'm Little Farmer, your host. Today we got a great show with Jeremy Silva from Build Us Oil. This week's episode is brought to you by the Cannabis Connoisseurs Coalition. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen difficulties, tonight's Extract Games is going to be postponed until February 25th. They have decided to combine the legendary Extract Games with the classic Dabentines event. That is going to be on February 25th, so make sure to reach out to the website to get your tickets. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm Little Farmer. The show is called Reefer the Reefer. I'm here with Jeremy Silva from Build a Soil. Great soil. It's a Colorado soil. Um, I was recommended by Miles Filippelli from Permitted plant extracts to reach out and get you on here. I wanted to do it anyways. I uh, I consult and got a few clients that use your soil and uh, best to come straight to you and get the information so they can get it and understand it right from you and not have the middleman. Awesome. Yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm here to help and definitely like talking about soil and really anything else. So thanks for having me on today. So yeah, the basis of the show, we wanted to um, just talk to people in the industry, talk about how they got into it, how they got into cannabis, try to normalize cannabis, show that we're not a bunch of freaks and uh, we're normal people. We can formal work normally consuming cannabis, just like there's functional alcoholics out there. And, and you know, um, but what actually got you into cannabis? All right. First of all, are you from Colorado? No, so I'm uh, from California. I okay. grew up um, in Orange County. I also lived, I went to freshman year at Rim of the World High School in Lake Arrowhead. So I lived up in the mountains for a little while. And then I lived closer to the beach for a little while. And so I had a little bit of both of those in my life. My dad lived in Lake Tahoe. Some of my best memories were in the mountains. Don't get me wrong, love surfing, but I'm kind of torn. I like snowboarding, like surfing, like the mountains, like the ocean. And so I ended up coming to Colorado in 2009. And so I've been here you know, well over a decade now, almost 15 years. So uh, did you come yeah, for the- I really like it here. You came for the mountains then, right? You didn't come for the cannabis because California already had their cannabis scene there. And I'm sure it was yeah. pretty, pretty easy to get back then. Yeah, I was coming for a simpler life. I was at the point in my life where I was looking for change. And when I came out here, you know, the American dream was still alive as far as, hey, you could get a home at a regular type of income and you might be able to have some chickens and some land and have a little bit of a piece of that. And I grew up in a cul-de-sac. And so that, that wasn't something that I really saw open to me and staying in California while it was exciting. Um, you know, the beaches are getting more crowded and home prices are going up and opportunity to start a business is more challenging. And so it ended up being a big, big blessing coming here, small town, easier to start my business. Um, so definitely came here for you know other reasons, but I remember looking up online going, Hey, what's the cannabis laws in Colorado? And I knew there was some, and I knew it was, you know, at least more progressive. Um, but I didn't know exactly what. And so once I found out that, Hey, not an issue, you can be growing. Um, it wasn't fully like legitimate yet, as far as a lot of the recreational hadn't passed. And there was a lot of medical going on, but at least it was there. And I even remember Googling, I think it was the town down the street near Montrose. Cause at that time in California, it was easy to go to like a whole row of dispensaries. I mean, you go to one street and there'd be 20 on there, you know, kind of like based on the landlord <laughs> and you'd go from shop to shop to see who had the best herb. And so I at least wanted to make sure. And I saw some guy running a dispensary illegally out of his house. 
and Olathe and ended up getting shut down. But he was trying to, you know, navigate the the holes in the law. And I just remember thinking, okay, well, at least I'll find, figure something out when I get there. Well, turns out it was a lot harder than I expected. Um, California, I mean, I know there's plenty of herb in Colorado, but when I got here and to Western Colorado, I wasn't connected. And so it was really hard to find decent herb. And so that's really what kickstarted a lot of my, I've been growing since then, you know, since 2009 straight. Now, before then I dabbled a little, but it was a necessity. And so I started to learn a lot around that time. So what, what you, what got you started in consuming? Was it a medical need or more just recreational or a little bit of both? Uh, recreational. Um, I would say like when you, so when I moved to Colorado for me to get my medical card, they wanted to list a physical ailment, uh, pain, something like that. But in California, one of the prerequisites was, Hey, are you feeling stressed? Cause that's not very healthy, you know? And I was running a business and it can definitely add some stress. And I feel like for whatever reason, my productive mind, um, I've used it as something to lean on, um, to calm that down. So I started in college. I, I didn't really smoke in high school. And I noticed that just keeping my busy schedule, being able to decompress and it allowed me to just really focus, be in the moment, live in the now. And while that can be a, a burden, sometimes I found ways where it just really benefited my life. So I would kind of set my to-do list, figure out what I needed to get done. And then I would smoke where a lot of times if I smoked and then try to come up with what to do, that's kind of where the problem lies. And, um, this plant has been part of my life since I found it and pretty much full force. Like as soon as I had, as soon as I found it, I remember thinking, okay, well, I'll only smoke maybe on the weekends or something. And then pretty soon you're like, why? It's like coffee. Like I just enjoy this as part of my day. Um, and then once you build that tolerance up as somebody, you know, first starts smoking, obviously it's a little bit more potent, a little bit more recreational, but eventually it becomes like having a cup of coffee. You just kind of balance it out. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's the same way with me. Uh, it's all day, every day, whenever I need it, it helps me focus. That's a big thing. I get a little ADHD and I get going in two or three different directions and it's easy to just take a toke or two and get focused and focus on one thing and get it done. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's definitely a blessing in that regard. I notice a lot of my, our customers, a lot of people that relate to me in that regard. Um, they feel like it helps narrow that, that ADHD, so to speak, or that wild mind. And I definitely have something like that. And um, I remember when I first started build a soil, it was a big deal. It was like, do I talk about, about smoking and growing and all this in public? What happens if I need another job in the future? And I know a lot of us go through this phase in our life. Um, I'm certainly past it now. I, I almost can't remember what it was like, partially because of the laws changing, partially just getting older and being fine with who you are. Mm -hmm. But I remember for a, a period of time thinking, maybe this is hurting my life and I shouldn't be doing this based on what I hear other people saying. And I started to realize doctors, lawyers, attorneys, everybody that I dealt with in life, a lot of times they're like, yeah, Blaze, you know, you're like, really, you're successful. It's like, well, yeah, I manage, I have lots of things that I like in my life and I just balance them. And so I think I started to realize that it wasn't to blame the plant. It was more the person. And certain people can obviously use any of these things as a, heck, I can go to the coffee pot and make six cups of coffee and waste a whole bunch of time. <laughs> and so I feel like um, once I understood that, I kind of dropped the excuses. Yeah, there's some people that shouldn't be smoking, I believe, because they get really lazy. Other people, it does the opposite. It kind of gets them amped up, uh, kind of just depends yeah. on the strain, too. Do you have a specific well, strain or type of weed you like to smoke? I like them all. Um, I definitely have some specifics, but I've noticed that they all resonate pretty well with me. Occasionally, I'll get like when I used to have to buy it, not grow it. There'd be some time where I'm like, man, that particular sack 
did not leave me very feeling very productive. Um, and I'd imagine maybe looking back, maybe it was aged or oxidized, maybe some CBN in there, something sleepier. But for the most part, as long as it's something that I'm growing and it's fresh, whether it's narrow leaf or broad leaf or any of these things, I tend to enjoy it just as much. Um, I do go back to the fuelier, stronger. Um, I really do like chem decrosses and I look for stuff that has that palate coating kind of fuel, gas. herb, gas. Like I like that. I definitely, I remember the first time I started growing some of like Agent Orange and, you know, Lemon G and some of these more interesting tropical um, terps. I just, I felt like they were exciting, but then after a while, you're kind of like, man, I'd nice to have just some fuel, some gas. And so I tend to be pretty predominant preferencing that. I could smoke it all day, every day, where if I have some something orange or something tropical, I enjoy it. But for whatever reason, I, I tend to switch away and then come back, use it kind of like as a treat or as a flavor. Yeah, so. me too. I like uh, I like the tinctures. Actually, I'm making some tinctures. I got some tangy tincture. I make it full spectrum extract and it, it tastes really good when you put it in some tea. That's my new thing. I'm trying to cut down on smoking. I got yeah. my tea. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that. Like one of the things about smoking and part of the reason why I think initially I started growing in soil and, and looking to the organic way is um, like all of us, I was concerned with what I'm putting in my body every day. And so if I'm going to be smoking every day, I want it to be something that I can at least tell myself, Hey, this is less likely to cause a health problem in the future. we all have one body we've got to live in. And as we get older, it becomes really real that we may have some health challenges in the future. And that's, crippling. I mean, life's great, right? You can have your bills paid and everything, but the health issue doesn't really matter. Um, so, uh, I started smoking a lot of outdoor, just soil grown. And I noticed, you know, I was running every day at the time and I felt like I could just puff and run and it just wasn't really a problem. But if I was smoking some indoor hydro and, and at that particular point in time, I felt like maybe this is harsher, maybe this is a problem. And so that, that started my trip into organics. Now, I won't say that, you know, smoking combustible in your lungs is something that's ever going to be perfectly smooth and good for you. I so I respect, you know, people looking at other methods, drinking tea, or I definitely like edibles, but I think a lot of us, we feel similarly that like smoking gives you this dose control where, yeah, you might have 10, 15 minutes to kind of like, okay, well, don't ask me to do something for a few minutes, but then I'm good to go. Where mm -hmm. edibles is the opposite. It's like, you don't really know. And then in an hour, you know, maybe it was not enough or maybe it's too much. And so um edibles can be very interesting in that regards so it i like them. Be, i used to take like an oil i'd make from olive oil you know every morning but less often lately yeah i think the uh the herb smoking it's a lot easier to control the consumption edibles it all has a lot it has more variables it has if you got food yeah. in your stomach if you don't have food in your stomach if you're drinking caffeine or not uh, it just has more variables when you're eating it than it does when you're smoking it and it's a yeah. lot faster to smoke it yeah, it has no ceiling either. So like if you end up, obviously it's easy to control. You just eat the normal amount of edibles, but if you're not making them or maybe just a buddy give them to you to know what the strengths is, it's one of those things that you can overdo and it doesn't really have a ceiling. Like it can just keep going where when you smoke, I mean, at a certain point, it's not going to do anything. You can just smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke. Uh, but edibles, <laughs> they can get a little weird. They so. take a little, the urge off of wanting to smoke too. Is that yeah. and a mouth, uh, fixation. You, you stop that. Even with cigarettes, I remember giving some people with some edibles and they're like, oh man, I'm going four hours about smoking a cigarette. They just didn't have the urge to want to do that. Yep. I think microdosing, a lot of people have been talking about microdosing's characteristics and helping people mm -hmm. that are qu uh, quitting something. Um, I don't know. 
you know, but it does seem that microdosing, I, that's something else I do occasionally psilocybin where some weeks I will, some months I won't, but it's one of those things that is like that. You can kind of bring it into your life as yep. opposed to having to be dependent upon it. So exactly. I have, I've tried the same. It's been readily available since it's been legalized here and even the year before that. So mm-hmm. it's easy and there's a lot of people not afraid to talk about it. So a 0.2 yep. gram, uh, milligram microdose in the morning. It's kind of like an edible, yeah. uh, definitely calms the nerves, keeps you from being in a hurry and a rush. and definitely helps me concentrate and think a little clear. It re-networks the uh, wiring in your brain somehow. Definitely. I feel like even a very small one, a lot of times there's more positivity, a little more smiling, a little bit more like focused thought without the anxiety. But exactly. You know, our, mind, our minds are complex, man. It's like being human is... There's a lot to it. So. There's some people that are microdosing the uh, edibles. I mean, I can't do it. My edible consumption's a little higher because I've been consuming for 30 years. But the yeah. people just getting into cannabis. Oh, barely makes a difference. Like yeah. five milligram edible, a little CBD, one to one. Oh, man, it, it hits some people just right. And it really does help some people calm down. Yeah. After consuming for a while, your tolerance does get up. Yep, it totally does. I mean, I remember... Um, when I was younger, a lot of my friends would be like, yeah, man, I'm taking a tolerance break. Just that way their herb would be stronger again. And I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> I don't want well, to take a break. I switch up the method. I found out and listened to some other podcasts, Smoking All. I don't know if you heard of the girls over at Smoking All and Andy. Um, they have a podcast and they're, they're PhD scientists and they do a lot of research and they study yeah. the effects of consuming in different ways. So you smoke it out of a bowl. The temperature is just a little bit different than it is smoking out of a bong. Yep. Smoking out of a joint, smoking out of a blunt. So if you switch it up, I've noticed smoking blunts and bongs for a month, and then I'll smoke a bowl of the same weed, and I'll be like, oh, man, whew, it just hit a little different. Yeah. No, I concur. I think switching varieties and then switching methodologies. And I even noticed early on when I first started smoking, like you'd be hanging out in your house where your, your mind knows where everything's at, where your couch is, where your kitchen's at, and you're hanging and you smoke. And it's one thing. But all of a sudden, you go to somebody's house that you've never been to out of a piece you've never smoked out of it can be your same herb. And all of a sudden you're like, woo, <laughs> totally another level of head change. And a lot of us have experienced that kind of like drinking at the bar, you step off the bar stool. You're like, Whoa, okay. Maybe I had more, one more drink than I thought. Same thing. Uh, occasionally that'll happen is you'll be on a weekend, just in your own zone, crushing stuff off of your to-do list, you know, be smoking and then you'll head into town or something. You're like, Oh, Hey everybody. I'm a little bit more high than I thought. Who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> Just that have, you, have you ever had an experience when you overconsumed or you felt uneasy or like, oh, I'm going to die and you want to call the hospital? Or have you ever been around anybody that's been in that situation? No, or- um, I've had some itch- issues where I was uneasy when I first started. And I'll bring up a story that I think is kind of funny, but i um, never really been around anybody that's had that happen. I can imagine with edibles and, you know, the newer generation, a lot more access. There could be some crazy experiences. Um, but you know, I always knew what I was getting myself into. My friends were either, you know, more older than me or whatever the case was where that, that wasn't likely. Um, I did, I remember when I first started smoking, I, my roommate at the time, um, he had this like three foot blue bong. And I remember that I would smoke kind of like a quarter bowl or like a little half snap out of it. And we were getting ready to go to the movies and I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to like smoke an entire bowl to myself, you know? And at that time it was like, we just smoke little personals. And that was like the big thing instead of trying to share it all, you know, and you get in half, you just smoke a little personal. So I packed a brimmer 
And I didn't have very much tolerance at all. I was just kind of venturing further than I had before. And I remember like barely being able to walk through this outdoor mall, get, get to the movies. And I don't remember even the opening scene. I just remember waking up with the credits, just completely passed out. And then I was fine afterwards, but walking there, I will never forget like, oh my God, how do I buy the ticket? People are looking at me, just kind of that feeling, right? Just too much. Yeah. Um, since then, that's never happened again from smoking. I just think that that was, you know, an increase in tolerance and was fairly early on in my smoking career, so to speak. I think that's um, a common thing where uh, newbies or people just starting to smoke. I remember yeah. in high school smoking and man, everybody knows I'm stoned. Everybody's staring at me. In the spotlight. And I remember walking <laughs> through the fairgrounds with a couple of friends. It's just like, oh man, everybody is staring at us. <laughs> but nobody was. It was just all in yep. your brain. Yeah. I think that's a good lesson for life too. I think as a kid, a lot of times with even about smoking, you start thinking people care and they're wondering and they're judging me and all these things, right? That exists out there. And sometimes um, cannabis can bring that anxiety level up if you're super high and now you're in a situation where you're not really sure. Um, and then you add that back in the day, the law and the fear of someone knowing what's going on, you know, and of course well, that still yeah. exists in a lot of states. It does Colorado, believe me, kind you of know, but just in my reality. Right. And so, um, yeah. Definitely. And then edibles, I've had some times where it's just taken me a lot further than I anticipated for a lot more hours than anticipated. And it was fine. It was nothing like over the edge, but I've just definitely had some experiences. Um, and I've had a couple of times where you just wake up, you know, falling asleep, eating too many edibles. And you're like, holy shit, am I doing the right thing with my life? What's going on with my whole <laughs> world? And a little bit of those like rushing thoughts coming, but yeah, I think that's once you get a little older and the responsibility sets in, maybe you got a kid or something, then you're like, oh, you're really thinking more about that responsibility and what I'm doing with my life. I think it happens when you're about 26 to 28, yeah. depending that's when your brain fully develops as a, as a human. Well, and it's important, right? I mean, if you don't question whether what you're doing is wrong or right, you can be left on the wrong path for too long. And a lot of people do that. And um Cannabis helps us think about things, but it doesn't always help us make decisions. At the end of the day, you've got to just do personal development, think about what you want in your life. And I think know, the psilocybin does that too. It uh, actually helps you think about it, but actually put it in motion instead of just thinking about it and be like, yeah, I need to quit coffee. Or I need to quit some cigarettes, but then you can do this. You just keep doing it. Psilocybin will help you to focus on what you need to do and actually set it in motion. Yep. And I think gardening teaches a lot of that too. You know, when you're growing a plant and you realize you can't skip a couple of days just because, and there's consequences to it, it starts yeah. to shape up the discipline in your life. And a lot of times we know what we want. It's weird. We have two parts of the brain. And it's funny. My dad used to tell me growing up, Hey, you always listen to your little voice. Most important thing I can teach you. But I joke, I joke with him saying, Hey, you never told me that there was two fucking voices. <laughs> And there's one that's kind of like your inner little bitch or your inner little weakness. That's like trying to, it just knows all of your insecurities. It knows like, Hey, you should just sleep in. Hey, you don't want to do that last set at the gym or, Oh, that last bit of work. It's late in the day. Just do it tomorrow. And there's the other set that reminds you of your goals. And if you start to listen to one more than the other, I think you can train it. And I've gone through phases in my life where like success has bred the weaker voice. Like, Hey, you've earned it. You can take some time off. And I've also had times in my life where I'm like, I just want to be savage. Like, I just want to do everything that I say I'm going to do and know that I'm getting closer to my goals. And so I think it's important to know both those voices exist in our brain. 
And if we're only listening to one of them explicitly, maybe we're going down the wrong path. They're both there for a reason. You know, the one doesn't want you to waste energy. <laughs> the other one doesn't want you to waste opportunity. Exactly. Um, you get too far down one side and it can be a problem. And I think that a lot of times smoking cannabis, um, and just being able to think about these things and the chaos, the day to day life make a huge, huge difference. But other times it's just like a cup of coffee. Like I said, you're just doing it to maintain normalcy. So, so you came to Colorado, you started up build a soil. Uh, what was the, the push behind that? What you said you wanted the healthiest, I think that's a big thing with a lot of cannabis users. They want to put the healthiest yeah. thing they can in their body. That's once you start doing yeah. that with cannabis, you start doing it with your plant, you see how it affects your plant really quickly. Yeah. And then you put that correlation into your own body, which is a little bit slower, but it's, it's there. If you don't yeah, give you yourself enough about- water, you start to wrinkle up and you start to get wrinkles in your face. You drink more yeah. water, you're, you, the, Bags under your eyes, time to go away. I know I've drank water for six months with nothing else. The bags under your eyes go away. Your skin becomes clearer. You yes. lose weight. <clears throat> yes. And that's and just a lot with of these water. you see in the garden because it's a shorter timeline, like you said. You can see an entire life process in a few months and you realize, wow, one deficiency or lack of attention and you start to lose a lot of health. And the exactly. leaves start to fade and issues happen. And it's hard not to correlate that to your own life and think, I wonder if some of these lack of nutrition, maybe what is a day in a plant's life is several years for us, but there's certainly correlation. If you just go on a binge of staying up too late, not getting up on time, being rushed in the mind, eating fast food, drinking all the time, your body is going to show it like a plant who's not being tended to properly. Yeah. And the good news is any of us that have grown plants, once we make that decision to change and be disciplined, you can nurse a plant around from, from uh, unhealth back to full raging health and take off again. The, the trick is not to stop the discipline once it's healthy again. And I think that's part of life as well is just sticking to it in a consistent day-to-day fashion. And it's a lesson I, you know, I'm not trying to preach. I'm more sharing struggles that I have, right? We're all human. Exactly. And so I'm not perfect by any means, but I'm aware of that. And that's part of what keeps me on the path. So it's uh that's why I'm trying to get the message out there. So people can, see how cannabis consumers use cannabis on a regular basis to help their lives and they can assimilate and stop these bad things that they're doing. I quit drinking yeah. maybe eight, seven years ago. I drank way too much and uh, yep. cannabis really helped me. Well, for me too, I'm athletic. Like I do jujitsu um, at least three days a week. I'd like to go four or five if schedule allows. And I noticed that if I have a glass of wine or two the night before, um, my wedding ring, it, it won't quite fit right. I can't take bloated. it off that easily. And that's an indication of some of the inflammation. And when I start to grapple, I'll notice that maybe I'm just not quite as flexible. And that leads to more residual pain and stuff. Cause you know, I'm getting older <laughs> and grappling is not that, that easy on the body. And so really when I was in college, I, I would look around and I'd go to parties and I realized that man, the designated drinker or the designated driver, designated drinker, the, the DD, the designated driver, we'd all like pick, okay, it's your turn. To me, that was the person playing Russian roulette with all, our, all of our lives that night. They weren't going to not drink once they got to the party. They were just going to be the one taking all the risk that night by driving the fucking car. And I thought, I cannot do this. I'm just going to drive myself and I'll smoke. And two things would happen. One, maybe I'd tell myself I'd have a drink just so I could be mingling at the party and I'd start smoking as well. 
And I'd be like, yeah, in the circle, everybody's outside. We're passing the joint around or whatever. And then I'd be like, fuck, where's my drink? I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> and so it kept me from drinking. And I really do think that drinking is significantly more problematic for life. It's a great time. Don't get me wrong. I mean, having a few drinks when I was younger and being a lot more social helps lubricate the mind and just not give a fuck and have a lot more fun. But um, DUIs, several of my friends had multiple DUIs and really ruined their life over it. And I would, I would see that. And it's not like they didn't smoke either. Um, to me, I just kind of gravitated towards cannabis as, Hey, if we're all going to recreate, we're all going to drink, we're all going to have some fun, let loose. This one seems to not affect my athletic life. Um, it seems to not affect, like I don't have a hangover in the morning. Maybe I could argue that if I smoke like a whole bunch right before I'm about to fall asleep, getting up is slightly harder, but it seems more to be like a mental desire as opposed to like, I'm physically just hung over or whatever. Um, so it's just more forgiving across the board for me. Yeah. I think a lot of athletes use it too. It helps them to recover because it yeah. relaxes their muscles. It helps their muscles to, uh, recuperate quicker after yep. lifting weights. A lot of bodybuilders, Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's known fact that Michael Phelps, a lot of athletes yep. use it to de, uh, uh, just to relax and, and, yeah, of course. And their muscles do work better. I think it is actually a, an, a, an enhancing drug. It helps yep. people to perform better. It's interesting because a lot of these athletes, like in jujitsu, um, steroids is just overused. It's, it's ridiculous because it's not as professional of a sport with all the testing. And a lot of these athletes are like, yeah, CBD droppers and they're advertising. And you're like, bro, you took like 10 injections of steroids this morning. I think your recovery is probably going to be fine. But as average athletes, it's like, you need to take every little bit you can get. I've got this tiger's blood CBD cream or bomb that, um, two mix TSK is a, a breeder as well, but I've just used it for like the last six, seven years. It's one of my favorite products and it really helps if I have a muscle injury. And so I like this CBD too. I yeah, like the CBD too. Yep. Uh, CBD actually helps you if you overconsume too much THC, you can consume yep. a little CBD. It'll help to calm you down and take yep. the effects away from the THC. So uh, I do that when I'm uh, out and partying and there's recreational smoking blunts and so much smoke around and you start to get a little, I'll, I'll take some CBD. It helps to bring me back a little bit instead yep. of being so tired. So uh, your soil, was that the first product that you started to develop when you came to Colorado? Was it soil or was it nutrients? Uh, were you more uh, focused on outdoor? Because I said, you know, you said the outdoor and the indoor. I'd actually read a nice little review that came out, a journal paper about a week ago about outdoor and indoors. That same yeah. strain grown side by side. I didn't or, see. I didn't think it was a good study on my initial review. Yeah. I, I just, wanted to. The sesquiterpenes um, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, but the challenge is, is in that study, they said it was a proprietary soil mix of organic matter, whatever, probably just a living soil. And then also some proprietary indoor. I'm like, can't we just do living soil indoor and outdoor so we see if there's a correlative difference? I almost mm -hmm. think it was like a hydro versus soil study. But since you split it with two variables, one hydro, one soil, and then one outdoors, one indoors, it kind of blew me away. They're yeah. talking about the um, degradation and oxidation of the indoor of some of the cannabinoids were outdoors. You had a lot more... Uh, nuances and the uh, different cannabinoids that were created. Mm -hmm. I think anybody that's grown the same genetic indoors and outdoors, they notice there's something special about the outdoor, the sun, the environment. It creates a really warm, well-connected like glow. It feels good when you smoke outdoor. And I think that's yeah, part of it. It's a, a warm, fuzzy body feeling. Like Yeah. But obviously dirt, bugs, all the other stuff. Um, it's not like indoors perfect, but there's this trade-off. 
And so I think that a lot of us that are growing in the living soil, we've noticed this connection and we're hoping to bring as much of that to our indoor garden as possible. And although I love the study, that's kind of what I was frustrated with is like, man, I wonder if the living soil indoor had as many of the benefits as the outdoor grown living soil um, yeah. in comparison to the hydro. But most of us have understood that if you're going in straight hydro without the benefits of some organic additives, a lot of times the terpene level and the cannabinoid profile is, is much more narrowed and we don't like it as much. And these are nuanced things. And so a lot more experienced growers that have that internal judgment from batch to batch and smoke to smoke and have experience, they tend to guide towards some preference. And when you're growing your own, you should just grow the way you want. So it makes sense to me. Um, soil was not the first product that we made. Build a soil was originally designed to help others build their own soil. And what I didn't expect is to people to say, well, I don't care what's in it. Just tell me what to make. And I just want it to work. And so originally I was like, well, we'll put anything you want. We'll put this, we'll put that, we'll make with this compost. And most people were saying, look it, I don't know what to choose on this list. Can you just make the best soil ever for, for cannabis? And I was hesitant because early on, I realized cannabis is an annual flowering plant. While we feel it's very special and it is, it's not special in that regard. You know, you can just grow a regular plant. And as long as that grows healthy, then that's going to work for cannabis as well. And I remember in the beginning, a lot of people were like, yeah, but this genetic, it likes a higher level of calcium in the soil. And if you add this, then that particular strain will do. And it's, I mean, maybe there's some nuance there, but realistically, we're talking about thousand variables of environmental differences from which type of grow light, outdoor, indoor, all these things that can change. Um, and so I was kind of hesitant, but we eventually started making soil on a tarp in my garage. And people would say, hey, can you just make me like three or four yards of this? And I'd be out there with a shovel, getting the ingredients together, mixing it, and they'd come pick it up, drive over, get it in trash bags in the back of their truck, whatever it took. And eventually that turned into us wanting to have somebody that could do it instead of me, because I was running the business and I could only do a couple of batches every, every once in a while. And so we brought an employee in or a couple of them. Oh, sorry about that. And they would basically just make the soil um, in a big feeding trough, like a almost like rowing a boat. It was, you know, 10, 12 feet long and it was rectangular and fairly narrow. So you kind of sit on the edge and you can use a shovel and you can shovel one way. Then you can get on the other side and move all the soil mm -hmm. back. And that was our way of just getting it all mixed together. And eventually that led to looking at some batched soil mixing machine, but living soil, the way that we saw that it was taught, it included 20 to 35% compost, like lots of compost. And then on top of that, almost hundred pounds of rock dust and then pumice and lava rock and heavy things. So we'd get our first soil mixer and we'd load it up. It was supposed to be a, um, supposed to be like a one yard soil mixer. We could mix like a half yard in it because it would just seize the whole motor up, break the machine if we tried to do it. And so we realized, hey, this might be harder for other people to do. Maybe we could have a way to make us a living soil. And eventually soil testing got involved. And that's where we really learned enough to make a duplicatable, consistent product because, you know, you sell a couple truckloads of soil and then you have to find a different compost or you have to get enough rock dust. And then, you know, we're talking organics, so they're slightly different. It's not like the same exact chemical each time. So to, to do that, we had to learn more. And at each step of the way, we've not been scared of that. We've just learned more, dug in, gotten better and gone further and now we have a whole soil building indoors here in Colorado with a, a pretty sophisticated machinery line that you fill all the hoppers with the different ingredients and it drops them into a, like a, like a cake that goes down a conveyor and it puts water on it and it goes through a mixing head. And one of the other big challenges um, that kept us 
from making this early, early on was um, uh, was really the fact that it took several weeks to cook afterwards. So like our 3.0 recipe, it takes almost three weeks, which is crazy. So did you start with the light weight? I know. Uh, so we were making only the Clackamas Coot recipe in the beginning. We made the LOS Ollie and the LOS Malibu, the living organic soil. And that was basically the exact recipes we got off the forum. Um, that was one third compost, one third peat moss and one third aeration. We used pumice and rice holes. We mix all that together with kelp and neem and crustacean and basalt and gypsum and all the standard ingredients. And that was our first offering. Um, it worked really well. And that one, you didn't have to cook as much. But what year was that? So, uh, God, 2013, 2014. 13. Yep. So yeah, 10 so years ago. It was about six years ago. I went around on a spree trying to find living soil. That's about when I got into living soil. And yeah. um, I could not find a bag of living soil on the shelf pre-made six years yeah. ago here in Denver or uh, in the high country. Yeah. And so really super hard. soil was popular when I first started this and there yeah. was like a green Avengers soil that came out, but you know, just whipping a whole bunch of stuff in a soil is different than making it at your house. And a lot of people would have problems with copious amounts of nutrients being mixed into a super soil and not everyone understanding how to layer it and all these challenges. That's part of what gravitated a lot of the forums into the living soil style was we were like, doesn't nature put the heavy food on top, not in the bottom? And isn't there a better way to go about doing this? But so many of the original recipes were a laundry list of items that you could buy at any garden center and then dump them all in a pile. And so it served its purpose. If you were not able to talk about this, you got some secret list online. You could go to Ace Hardware, go to the local garden store, go to the big box store, buy some castings, buy some you know mycorrhizae if they had it, buy a whole bunch of different things and mix it in a pile. And so um, those original recipes, they started being based off of a bagged potting soil as the base. And so you wouldn't just go buy peat moss and aeration. You would buy like Roots Organics or Fox Farm or whatever, and you would dump that in the pile and then you'd soup that up. Mm -hmm. I think that led to some problems because not every bag of potting soil was the same. Then you'd add a whole bunch of stuff to it. It was kind of like going to the store and buying a whole bunch of canned soup and then mixing them all together and then adding the meat and saying that you're a chef. And so uh, eventually when it comes down to it, now all the soil companies, none of them buy, I mean, maybe they are, but the few living soil companies that have come out of the woodwork, they're not just buying somebody else's soil and mixing stuff into it. That's what was done because of the hole in the market. And so now we sell like a take and bake kit where you can get all the stuff to your house and you can open up the raw peat moss, break it up with your hands, put the compost in and really go through that experience. And while I love that we have bagged potting soil, it's great, but we mix it here. We put it in a bag. It sits there until it gets to you. Something about taking the raw ingredients, understanding the ratio, breaking it up with your own two hands, moistening it yourself, seeing it come to life and warm up and all the biology that's involved and tending to it every day while you're getting excited to plant into it. I feel that really connects people to the original emotions that we had when we were starting to build our own soil for build a soil. So I really encourage a lot of our customers to look at those kits. You can buy some compost or some nutrients from us. You can go get the peat moss locally. There's a million ways to do this. When I first started, a lot of us were going up like into the national forest and getting a little leaf litter from under a tree here, some rock dust there and putting it in our soil pile. But as build a soil, I'm hesitant to tell everybody from every city to just drive to every nature and start digging it up. So um, I do like that our soil works great out of the bag, but building it yourself is really exciting. So when you say cook, what exactly do you mean by cooking it? 
Yep. So it's basically composting, um, homogenizing, coming together. We have a lot of biology. And so when you mix a big soil pile together, a lot of these amendments are powdered and they're just dried up, ground up organic inputs, like chopped up seeds would be a seed meal. Um, alfalfa is just the alfalfa all chopped up and dried. And so when you add those to the soil, it's not like there's nutrients in the soil. There's just ground up organic matter. That organic matter kind of has to go through a biological breakdown process. And when you make the soil and you add lots of stuff, it can start to create ammonia and all these other problems and, and actually heat up. And there's thermophilic bacteria in there that as they consume, they create waste and they start to breathe, you know, consume oxygen. And so it can make it get warm and it can make it so your plants can't really breathe. And what's interesting is the original like Coots recipe, it didn't have like the crustacean meal is more of a calcium source, the neem cakes, the seed meal, but that actually has some inhibiting effects to ammonium in the nitrogen process. If you research neem, mm-hmm. some people think it's a problem. I think it's a benefit, but um, that's part of why the Coots mix, you never had to cook. You just mix it and plant into it. Still, if you waited a week or so, it seemed to be more forgiving, but the super soil, if you didn't wait, I mean, your plants would fry because realistically, if you put it a super soil in a three by three pile, so it's a cubic yard, three by three by three. When you learn about composting, what you find is that you can't just jump, dump some kitchen scraps in a pile and expect compost. You can dump kitchen scraps in a pile for a couple of years and eventually the biology and everything turns it into compost through slow composting. But most thermophilic compost that we're used to, the high quality stuff, it's made over a couple of month period and it's done by adding the right amount of carbons and the right amount of nitrogens or browns and greens. When you learn the ratios and you just say a layer of browns, layer of greens, layer of browns, layer of greens, then you have to turn it every day because when you get it right and you get the moisture right, it goes up to almost 160 degrees. And compost makers, they know it'll go past 160 if they don't turn it. And that can actually start to ruin the compost. Where in that 120 to 160, it's in that like composting phase, actively composting. And so if you keep turning it where the outside that's not as biological gets mixed to the inside of the engine, in that three by three by three pile, that's the minimum size. So if you were to just stack browns and greens in a five gallon bucket and set it there, nothing would happen. It's something about the volume in nature that creates enough of this reaction that it starts to really heat up. And so when we mix soil together, super soil with all those carbon inputs that are organic nutrients and some of them high in nitrogen, you're now getting carbons and nitrogens in a potting soil and you start to basically compost right there in the pile. And so they call it cooking because it'll actually get hot. But what's interesting is um, you may not notice that in a five gallon bucket, it can just be off. And I, what I mean by that is in a three by three by three, if you were to build a cubic yard of super soil, it'll get 150 degrees. But if you just make like a 10 gallon batch, it's not enough volume and it may just get mildly warm and it may mm-hmm. take a long time to go through that process. And I've noticed that if you just plant a plant right into a pretty good uh, rich mix without cooking it, it'll just act like it's out of air, even though it's not overwatered and it'll get burned because it's actually getting hot around the root zone. And really what I think is happening, if the heat's not excessive, is it's not physically burning it with heat. It's the soil is still kind of cooking or homogenizing. It's composting, which means that the microbes are eating first. They're going to town. They're turning all that into food, but it's not food yet. And so your plant is kind of like just hanging out, waiting for the soil to become soil. And whether you have to cook or not, we know that if you wait more time, whether it needed it or not, it's probably more together, more balanced in moisture, 
and the biology is proliferated and it's ready to go. So it's part of the build a soil way. If you're going to make your own soil, we recommend giving it a week or two before you plant into it. Then you're going to have a really good experience. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that I've had some bad experience by pre-prepped super soil burned yeah. up a lot of roots. Uh, you can see it just, the leaves look burned. They start to turn brown and, crip, and yep. crispy and, and uh, it, nutrient burn. It's yeah. So like our build a soil light, we can make right off the line and put it right into a bag. It's great. The balance is so ideal that we're not going to go thermal, um, really finished compost in it. But in 3.0, we have multiple compost sources and a lot more organic inputs. And so if we run that off the line into a cubic foot bag, it'll actually perform okay. But if someone dumps 20 of those cubic footers into a pile, like for a big bed of soil, it'll get hot. And so that's, you know, one of the natures of the beast is I think that people that are growing this way should just be aware of these things so they don't ruin their own crop. But what we do to offset that is we run the 3.0 into big yard tote sacks and we let it sit in that cubic yard sack until it's finished getting warm and we measure temperature. At that point, we dump it back in the hopper, run it through the bagging machine. So it's already cooked before we bag it. That's a huge issue. I mean, to buy a truckload of compost, truckload of peat moss in the middle of winter, have it show up, have it processed, have it made into soil, have it sit there for three weeks, have it rebagged and allocate which one of those are the finished product when somebody wants it today. You know, it's a lot of logistics and value to be adding to a pot of soil that most people think is worthless. It's like, what's well, dirt? I mean, can I buy it for like five bucks? You're like, dude, I had to have an entire business just to funnel all these things and a whole bunch of money to pay for all these, then mix it together, then cook it, then put it in. A... So building your own takes all that risk out and allows you to go through that process yourself. And I think you really see the value in it at that point. So, so um, I have a couple of clients or, that I consult. They uh, love build a soil. And when I get a new client, I've already explained it to them, but I wanted you to spit it out. What, what type of soil do you recommend for germinating seeds? Okay. This is a good question. And this is one that's challenging for me to answer because I never want to hurt someone, right? I never want to tell them to do something and have them have a bad result, but I can pop seeds right in our 3.0, our light soil. I actually really like using build a soil light to start seeds. It's one of my favorites. I've done the 3.0. I, yep. it, has and a it, and it works, right? But if you lose one seed and they're expensive, you're like, I wonder if it was the soil and mm -hmm. putting seeds in a very biologically rich soil, you know, you might have one that was the weak seed that may have been very weak and it gets eaten by something that's in, living in the soil because a little moist gets in there. So it's possible. And that's why a lot of people like in bulk commercial operations, they always sterilize everything. So they don't lose a million dollars of seeds. Mm -hmm. But for us home growers, I mean, man, everybody- Especially a breeder, you don't want that weak one. So I like it. It actually- I like that, right? If out, you have a out the weak seeds, ones, I want, I want the strong genetic. Yeah, you made your own weak. seeds, just pop it straight in soil. You're buying seeds and spending a large part of your budget. That's where you get people- using like paper towels and mm -hmm. every method possible. I prefer to go right to soil and have some faith. Um, we do offer what's called our heady starts seedling soil. And that one we made just because a lot of times if you're starting vegetable seeds or things, um, you need to have a, a flat with a, like 72 or a hundred little tiny little seedling holes in it. And you need to put a whole bunch of seed in there. And so this is a pro mix. And then we add in some worm castings and we add in some Montana grow volcanic rock dust. And we put in a little bit of nutrients that has this phosphorus that really helps the rooting. Um, and it works great. It holds a little more water than I like, but that's good if you just set it and forget it. Um, and it works really well. I've had phenomenal success using that with large seed runs where I got a very high percentage of germination. But at so, my house- Is it a little, just, oh, sorry, sorry about that. Is it a little less hydrophobic? Like, does it 
Absorbs yeah, the it water a little, a little bit yeah, better. Yeah, it absorbs too. the water immediately. All, all living soil is a little hydrophobic. So yep. that's one thing when you water it, it likes to go right to the bottom. Yep. And it's, Once it's, it's balanced, out. the soil will absorb water properly. But all fresh living soils, um, we're not adding a chemical wetting agent like these potting soil companies. And so even if we add a wetting agent, it, it, it breaks down and it's not going to be active anymore. Um, that's kind of just for the initial wetting. Uh, but a chemical one can persist. And so it can have the ideal qualities to receive water right away where any living soil, um, you know, we've experimented a lot around here. If we put too much water in the soil, then it costs the customer a lot in freight just to ship the water. If we make it too dry, then when they get it, they can't get it wet. They just keep putting water on it. Unless you actually get your hands in there, it's hard to get it to absorb. Once it's absorbed, it's fine. So for us, from a quality control perspective, it's ideal to have the moisture perfect and then put it in a bag where it's likely to preserve that. But we have to have little micro holes in the bags because we don't want it to go anaerobic, be sealed in an enclosed environment. So for what it's worth, those that are gardening at home, if they buy a bag of potting soil, one of the first things they should do is make sure they address the moisture. If you just take a bone dry bag and throw a plant into it, it may never receive the water properly and have dry pockets. If you just take a bag and it feels super wet and just dump water straight into it, it might hold a decent amount of water. And that's the one big learning curve, I think, with living soil is understanding that. And all of the nutrient cycling is dependent upon it. You drown them in water, they won't get it. Um, you don't give them enough, it's almost a hot soil because there's barely any water with the available nutrients. Um, yeah, once I, that's figured uh, out, I'll pour some in the bag, let it sit for a little bit. Yeah, let it sit there for a little bit. And then yeah, it absorbs get it, it up. Then I'll mix it up and make sure yep. it's nice and moist before yeah, I You can even like fold the bag back down and shake it around a little bit. Kind of I'll just it, flip it upside down and keep yep, turning yep. it. So if there's any water selling at the bottom, it'll just go right back to the top. Yep. And that's part of what I think I like in the build a soil way. We explain, hey, get your container built, get it moist and nice, get it in the environment so it's like warm, not ice cold. A lot of times we'll sprout a little cover crop in it so some roots get in there. But when you do that, you're also taking care of the moisture issue by nature, just because you're giving yourself time where it's not an emergency. You're like watering it slowly, checking on it. Um, but if you just take a bone drag by bone, bone dry bag of soil and you have to get transplanted that minute, it may be a couple of days of getting the moisture right, but it'll still work. So, yeah, I like the idea of uh, getting it ready, let the microbes get warm, get them uh, nice and alive, get them. Yeah get them some moisture so they can start working and then put the plant in. Yeah. Like when I make bread, Coot, um, the Clackamas Coot, he taught a lot of the original recipes and had, he just had so much good information as to why these things worked. Um, but he baked a lot of bread. And so he would correlate some of his understanding of yeast, um, single cell, just, you know, real simple fungi and how that might correlate to the soil. And it's crazy. You take your starter for sourdough, you, you add a little tiny bit of sourdough starter, whole bunch of flour and some water and set it there. And then by the end of the day, it's fully expanded and it's a big starter to the point where it's going to run out of food now. So you got to feed it again every day, sometimes twice a day. It just depends on temperatures, all these things. So you start to think about that. You're like, huh, my soil's alive. Add a little water, get it to the right temperature. Will that ramp up like my sourdough starter did and be ready and teeming with life? Um, I think so. And when you see how quickly that can happen, it makes sense that we don't need to be perfect. We just need to get the ideal conditions and nature kind of takes over. So, so you, you start off with the, uh, what was the name of the, uh, the seed starter mix again? Okay. So the seed starter mix is our heady starts. Heady start. Soil. Okay. Yep. So you start with that. Uh, I usually leave mine in the container two to three weeks, depending yep. on how fast they are. And then you transplant them, transplant them into the lightweight. Or 3.0, correct? Those are the yep, two. Other either ones. one. I like the build a soil light or the 3.0. It depends on what my goals are. 
So uh, is the 3.0 something that you can put in a seven gallon bucket, one plant, and it will carry it through the whole life cycle? Or do you have to amend? For the most part, yes. We uh, build a soil, we really shy away from saying water only. And I, what yeah. I mean by that is most people that I give that freedom to, they end up growing which, what's going to be like a half pound plant out of a seven gallon pot. And it, it won't sustain life to the end. But if you put a plant in, our, our goal is to have a canopy that mimics the size. So if you have one seven gallon in a four by four and you veg it for six weeks, scrogging it out, and then you flip to flower, there's no way the seven gallon of 3.0 is going to support that. It's just too much biomass being taken out of the, the container. But as far as going further than light and other soil recipes that are balanced, yes, it has a lot more slow release in it that will continue to keep up with the plant. And so a lot of people end up getting the 3.0 because they put that in a container, they flip to flower on time and they can run water only and they really, really like it. Um, myself with 3.0 or with light, any of them, I like to use a larger container and start to set up that top dress layer where the feeder roots can go up and they can eventually get used to the food being on the top of the soil, not everywhere. And so the 3.0, I really like it. It makes sense for a ton of reasons. Um, the light soil, I think gives people the most flexibility in that their plants are perfectly healthy out of the light soil, no matter what, because it's not overdone for some genetics. And then they can add a little bit to it. But some people they're like, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to add and deal with all that. So just give me the 3.0. And at least it's done at the lab with some balance where they're going to have good results for how much is in there. But we like almost triple up the nutrients in there. And so in the light soil, you get a lot more balance as far as immediately out the gate, most every genetic should just be very, very healthy. The whole leaf should be perfect. And that's really what I'm looking for. Um, you can do it with both, but I feel like a lot of our customers that go to 3.0, they just want the best. They want it loaded. They don't want to worry about it. And a lot of our customers that go with light, they go, oh, I immediately want to put some teas on and top dress. And I'm worried about overdoing it if I get to 3.0. Um, so I hope that makes sense. Like a lot yeah. of us are coming from hydro. We just want to tinker every day. Lever, a a lot of people like to put stuff in and they, they just, like to. And so you would get the 3.0 and you start putting stuff in it every day. You know, you could overdo it. So, so um, if you do get the light, what are some products that you like to use with your, with your soil? I know that you have root wise. I've seen yep. you got down to Canacon, talk to Martin and uh, uh, miles from fermented plant extracts. You guys were all kind of together there. And yep. uh, so do you, uh, you use the root wise. I've, uh, actually use the uh, biofoss root wise, which helps unlock the phosphorus, correct? Yep. And there's other reasons. There's there's definitely a whole plethora of organisms in that biofoss and a lot of them are enzyme producers. And so a lot of the organic nutrients, they're going to be broken down through an enzymatic process. And so the biology is important because they're going to produce the enzymes that start the breakdown specific to that compound. Um, having heavy enzyme producing bacteria makes a big uh, a lot of sense as well. And these will sometimes correlate in that functional group where some of them are creating more enzymes to make it easier for the other ones to jump in. And it's like a family. Uh, there's different biology for each job. Like one biological function might break down the original ammonium to nitrate. Another one might come in and release the phosphorus. And so when you go to the hydro store, a lot of times you'll see this broken down in a different products. You can buy the mycorrhizae, which is the fungi. And that's on healthy farms. And we see them either go around the root or in the root, depending on the type. And so cannabis prefers the mycorrhizal, um, there's endo or there's ecto, right? So you look on the bag of the mycorrhizae that you get in the root wise, those are the species that we're looking for for annual flowering plants. Where if you get an endo ecto, that's like for the whole garden, it's for trees and it's also for annuals. And you, it's just kind of trying to please everybody. 
And so early on, I would pull up like Great White, all these other companies, and they were just clearly bought like a gardening product and tried to make a cannabis label because it's everything. It's not just for cannabis. Mm -hmm. It's almost a waste of money to buy stuff for a fruit tree that won't work at all with cannabis. Then you realize, yeah, these scientists may not have it perfect. There's not one type of fungi that works one way. Nature's not like that. So having a blend is good. A lot of these will help with moisture, they'll help with disease, and some of them will connect to the plant, help them take up nutrients. And so the mycorrhizae is kind of the key one that we've all learned about, teeming with microbes, a lot of these other books made popular. But there's also um, azos or azosporillum, and there's a number of different species. There's bacillus, there's trichoderma. And if you just go buy trichoderma and you dump it on your plant, but yesterday you'd put a regular biological product, they're not in the right balance. So they can now consume each other. Um, because by, you know, nature's like that. So in the root wise, you get the right amount of trichoderma. You get the right amount of the mycorrhizae. You also get the azos, which you normally have to buy as another product. Those nitrogen fixers are in there as part of that functional group. And so the, the root wise product, the reason why it's our flagship microbial product is it follows the build a soil method where you actually have an entire functional group. And all of that is what's leading to the success instead of pretending like we know this one biology is all you need. And a lot of products are like two, three bacillus and that's it. And all they are is a new marketing fad for a year or so. But when we look at the root wise and we look at the way build a soil does it, we represent like, I was talking to my staff today and they were referencing some deficiency charts because a customer had asked. And I said, you throw those away. That's like Western. That's like going to the doctor and saying, my knee hurts as opposed to telling him that you were just skydiving the other day and you hit the ground hard, he's going to start giving you a pill when all you need is a little rest. And so if we were to look at living soil, as far as the nutrient component, we don't want to just be like, I think it's magnesium. We need to keep a buffet full and allow the plant to to take what it likes. It's important to know which things it likes more and you might have to replenish sooner rather than later. Um, But for the most part, as long as we don't have excessive sodium, excessive chloride, excessive carbonates, we can add enough nutrients of all types and let the plant decide and it'll have everything that it needs. That's why craftland works well. That's why the loaded soils work well. Um, but when you start picking and choosing, you better be right because sometimes it's not, it's not what you're seeing. It's an antagonism or an overwatering or something locking it out, not just the ingredient. And so when we look at root-wise, I'm not just like, oh, we just need a nitrogen fixer or, oh, this mycorrhiza is going to fix it. it. It's all of them combined so that we can create healthy farm conditions in a potting soil. Now, arguably over time, you have worms in there and decay and all these things going on. You may not need to continually add any sort of microbial product, but you know, we're, we're indoors, it's artificial light and you overwater. And I mentioned the sourdough thing to you. Like, it's amazing how quickly life can proliferate. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to know that, Hey, if you overwater one time, maybe you can add some root wise and bring the balance back and adding them all in allows to keep that buffet full as opposed to maybe the soil going one direction. And we get really good results with it. Um, when I first started carrying RootWise, I was kind of hesitant. I'm like, you don't need anything except for good soil, good genetics, good environment, and some discipline. But I noticed that a lot of our customers, they have a wider margin for success on the over underwatering and all these other things if they had some help from really good biology. When we first started, it was all brewing compost tea. That's what everyone did. And it's still a thing, but um, 
you can quickly see how brewing it incorrectly or whatever, it starts to spike biology in one direction. And Coot always used to make, he's like, man, why are you brewing these compost teas? Just put the worm castings on the soil. <laughs> That's what I started doing. Yeah. And so our soil is similar. Like we have the root wise. We love it. All three of those products that work really, really well. We could spend hours just talking about those. Yeah, the biodiversity um, in living yep. soil makes it just more yep. diversity, makes it better. Like you said, a yep. smorgasbord, they can pick and choose what they want. Yep. And then we have a 12 seed cover crop in permaculture, having up to 12 seeds gives you that diversity. So, you know, maybe one season, this seed does better, maybe another one, it attracts bugs and pollinators and beneficials. So in living soil, this can give a home to a lot of your beneficial insects. And as you chop and drop the cover crop into actual soil mulch, that feeds the worms and it turns that decay into new nutrients for your soil. So it never, ever runs out of food and you keep the soil forever. Before the living soil craze, people would literally be looking for places to secretly dump all their soil after they're run because it was illegal to grow and you didn't want to put it out, but for the trash guy to find, because he'd know you're growing. So you'd have to drive around like behind Walmart or some shit, find a dumpster and, or like a Creek or something. And that's not good. You don't want people dumping stuff in the Creek with chemical nutrients. I just put it in my regular garden. Yeah. <laughs> it helped it help with my regular garden. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And then, uh, the other thing you do have a craft blend. You just mentioned the craft blend. Yeah. Is it a 13 or a 12? I think it's 13. I think it's uh, 13 ingredients. It might be more. I always get when I talk about several in a row. I, but it's I did a whole get a sample of diversity, you know, and it's done in balance. And so what we did is you can actually get a free report at Build a Soil on, on our blog. It's, I think, the most recent blog. And it's a form. But when you get the PDF, it explains the Steve Solomon way of making your own complete organic fertilizer. You know, as a human, we know like, oh, I'm, let me make a healthy meal tonight. I need like a protein, some salad, a, you know, uh, a carb, like, and you can have a well-balanced meal, has a long-term energy, short-term protein, all the stuff. But if you ask somebody how to make a fertilizer for your plants, what do you add? What's the, what's the standard balanced meal? Um, and so that complete organic fertilizer tutorial teaches you um, via the Steve Solomon method from his Intelligent Gardener book of providing some seed meal, has a little bit of everything, providing some calcium source, providing a phosphorus source. And when you do that, you have a really great, well-rounded, complete organic fertilizer. Um, and we add rock dust to that for all the trace minerals. It's everything all in one. It's a craft, big blend also, right? Yeah. And craft blend is just a version of that with a lot of diversity, tons of different ingredients. So when you top dress it on your soil or mix it in, you're feeding that biology, all these different ingredients. Um, and we do have vegan stuff, but a lot of times, like what people don't realize is the soil in your backyard, it has dead crustacean in it from previous eras. Yeah. You know, uh, a lake that used to be there. Uh, rabbit, the rabbit turds. It's just rabbit, yeah, rabbit turds, worms, uh, arthropods, all that. And uh, to, to compound it even further, like growing lettuce and taking those tractors on these big industrial greens farms or berries or whatever, they're just slaughtering bunnies and homes of birds and everything you can think of just while they're harvesting the greens. So I think from a vegan perspective, growing your own is always a really good way to go. But I doubt a vegan would want blood meal and bone meal growing their lettuce especially when that blood and bone comes from a slaughterhouse that has all the politics that they wouldn't agree with being fed GMO corn through a political system that they'd rather vote out. And so giving their grandparents cancer through all the chemicals. So when you fully connect it, it's hard to see how they're, yeah, there's some emotion there. Um, But vegan, as far as soil with, with all those politics aside, I don't think that's how you really build soil, but I do agree with a lot of it in the sense that a seed meal is very forgiving. and makes a lot of sense, but a fish meal, I mean, if you're catching your own fish out here in Colorado, there's a lot of mining. There might be lots of heavy metals in it. You have to be Mm -hmm. kind of careful. You don't want just a million pounds of the same exact fish from the same location um, where 
plant-based is, is very safe. When we send off for heavy metal testing, very little gets up into the plant seed meal versus the raw ocean-based or animal-based amendments. Um, but like bone meal is great. I would love to use it. There's just no organic bone meal out there. They say it's for organic use, but it's from non-organically fed cattle from the big slaughterhouses. So build a soil doesn't use it. Um, we use a fish bone meal because it's wild caught fish, but you know, at the end of the day, regular bone meal would be a little bit better because of the lack of sodium that comes in it, but there just isn't a clean source. Um, guano similar, like we don't use guano. I don't want my employees breathing it. And there's other reasons, but, uh, sustainability, um, and you can choose to use some of these, but it's just knowing why. And I feel like build as well as mission is to provide the burden of the knowledge and allow the consumer to decide what they'd like to do, as opposed to just being sold some bullshit and being lied to. You know, you go to the store and a lot of these organic fertilizers, they are, you flip to the back, they're the cheapest ingredients possible with like a tomato on the front for tomato fertilizer. It's like, you don't need tomato fertilizer. You just need annual flowering plant, regular fertilization. Same with cannabis. Um, but you'll read the back and it'll say cottonseed meal. I mean, the heaviest GMO pesticide sprayed, probably sprayed at harvest day. With a lot of soy too. Right. Soy similar. And then you'll see uh, corn gluten meal or corn meal. And then you'll see. Uh, which corn is GMO around, you know, and then you'll see um, animal byproduct waste. You'll see meat meal, like ground up meat and stuff in there that makes the protein. And so the further that you get down the rabbit hole of understanding why you got into growing organic, and then you find out that all the products on the market are actually like a regurgitation. And then they sell it to you like, yeah, but we're using a waste. And isn't that recycling? You're like, yeah, but you can go recycle that shit somewhere else. I don't want your <laughs> slaughterhouse waste in my cannabis. And so um, I think a lot of our customers resonate with that, but many of them didn't know. They just go, what do you mean? It says organic. You're like, no, no, no. For organic use, mm. the National Organic Program says the that wording. dead cow is now usable on an organic farm. It does not mean that or that cow was organically raised or humanely raised. So, so uh, you mentioned heavy metals and um, one thing when you're growing uh, with salt, you really want to flush it. And that's to get out your nitrogen, your phosphorus and your potassium that's built up in there. But those are not the heavy metals that people are talking about that. Um, <clears throat> I don't I'm not really educated on the heavy metals and the testings and how um, sometimes they come out hot and somebody on a commercial scale can grow and the heavy metals will be flagged and they can't sell it. Yep. Sometimes that could be from the wind blowing it outdoors. I've heard mm -hmm. uh, can blow dirt up onto your plants. So you got to clean it if you're outdoors. Yep. But I've heard other people talking about living soils could leave heavy metal traces in your in your cannabis and get it, and it'll fail testing on a on the Colorado market. I don't know. Yep. Every state's a little bit different. Michigan, Colorado, California. A lot of them are strict. A lot of these legislatures just copy each other's rules because they don't know where to start. Uh huh. And that me too process of just copying rules has created some problems because um, a lot of this is lobbying and the biggest growers that had the biggest warehouses were all converted retrofitted hydroponic warehouses. And so you'd imagine all they have to do is take water and nutrient. And so if they had to compete like on mold, that would be a problem. They're indoors. That's going to be more likely than heavy metals. And it used to be that a lot of these hydroponic nutrients, they're just awful, full of heavy metals. And so when um, the testing started, a lot of the hydroponic nutrients would get cleaned up. So you can easily buy hydroponic nutrients that you can test that don't have heavy metals in them. And so that'll allow you to create, create grow a clean product. When it comes to living soil, 
Um, the argument is different. The argument is that these political lobbying, they allow you to remediate mold because hydro growers have that problem. So do anybody indoors. But they literally will allow you to clean that mold up off the weed and then sell it to the market still. But what they wouldn't do is allow someone that failed for heavy metal, which arguably uh, less than like the amounts they put as far as the restriction, all the soil outdoors everywhere has more than that. So if anybody grows some marijuana outdoors, they're going to have a problem with that soil, potentially having more than a lot of the living soil recipes. But there are some living soil ingredients that can be problematic. So build a soil has had an issue in the past where as the commercial laws got tighter and tighter, you'd have grows that were passing like flying colors and you realize, oh, well, there were 10 cycles deep by the time the laws got activated. Or some of these brand new grows, it's their very first cycle. And so there might be more residual from the soil mixing. Um, but for the home consumer, the levels that they were testing, I don't think were of any concern compared to what normal soil would look like for thousands of years, just comparing. So it almost seemed like a political issue where they're like, hey, hydro can pass heavy metals, no problem. We can clean up um, dirty moldy weed and we can sell it. But if soil starts to win and they grow five acres of cannabis outside, we're fucked. The price per pound, we're never going to compete. That started happening. And so you saw some shift towards the heavy metal testing and I think lobbying. And now um, you have people that if they grow on living soil without thinking about it, you can definitely fail. Um, you can be putting copious amounts of ocean-based products, kelp meal, things like this that will have arsenic or cadmium. Those are the two real heavy ones that they've been testing for that seem to be an issue. Um, and it can build up and it can happen where you pop hot and that hot may be arguably lower because they don't have that restriction in food. Um, and it even goes deeper, like baby food is where you might have heard of some heavy metal issues in the past because babies are so sensitive. And so they do a lot of testing, but what they found is that there is um, like organic arsenic versus non-organic arsenic. And that there's some differences there. And so kelp meal, it's said it's sold as an animal food and some kelp meal will have up to 20 parts per million of arsenic. And some will have very, very little depending on, you know, batch to batch. What they found is that it's all predominantly organic arsenic and that's not a human health issue. Um, but it could be if you are not differentiating and in cannabis, I believe Michigan says organic or uh, inorganic arsenic, but when you send it to the lab that fails you, there's zero differentiation. And so it becomes kind of political of knowing like, do I have to test for just that? What do I do? So build a soil took the high road and instead of arguing that like, Hey, that a little tiny bit of organic arsenic from kelp should be allowed. We just decided to remove it, even though we fucking love kelp meal. So in our ultra clean recipe, uh, really 3.0 light, all of them, we have heavy metal testing on. They're phenomenally low, very safe to use. And all of our inputs are good to go. We have all the testing and can provide it for you. But there was um, a local lime product. There was a calcium phosphate we got from a couple different suppliers, but there was one in particular that would fluctuate. And so sometimes you test it and it would be below three parts per million. Sometimes it would be up towards nine parts per million or higher in cadmium. And when you're adding little bits, that's fine, but we really rely on our living soils having lots of minerals in them. So we just eliminated those and we used soil lab testing to replace the ingredient instead of just going, well, we don't have that. And so Build a Soil was able to use an organic rice bran that's very high in phosphorus. And we were able to use small amounts of fishbone meal without overdoing the sodium and keeping very low amounts of heavy metals. And so 3.0, craft blend, light, all of those, they test really well in heavy metals, where before we would have more kelp meal in there, uh, more crustacean meal in there. And if a grower got a batch and then just planted right into it and maybe fed other additional inputs that had heavy metals in them, 
and they had no idea what was happening, they could get tested and all of a sudden they have a huge lesson in heavy metals to learn. At home, it's pretty simple. Um, you know, all of our best practices work really well for the home grower. Yeah, I've never had a problem where I've never really noticed anything. I've, yeah. Living soil, my, my herbs always smoother, uh, yeah. easier to toke, not coughing up all the time. I mean, you cough sometimes, I'm taking a big hit, but yep. it's so much smoother than the indoor. Uh, like you said, the salt, you can tell the difference. I can, yeah. I can tell it's much harsher. Somebody's using general hydroponics. I could, it, I cough really quickly. Yep. Well, what's interesting tote. to me is I notice a lot of the herb, even though they'll have different varieties, will all taste similar and have similar profiles when they're grown with the same exact nutrient. Where when you're growing in living soil, I feel like it allows the plant to show you its true natural profile of what it yeah. would produce without being influenced that way. I have had uh, my first round. Somebody was teaching me, sent me up with some Northern Light clones. Uh, I was in Spain. He was like, okay, you water with this nutrient. He didn't tell me once a week. He, so I was watering with the nutrient every every watering, every two days I was giving it nutrient. And it was popping like a sparkler. Whenever you smoked it, it would, you could see the nitrogen and then the phosphorus and the potassium in little pockets just because those, those are all flammable, flammable chemicals on their own. Whenever you have potassium or phosphorus or nitrogen, they all, that's what they make bombs out of pretty much. Yeah. Well, and I don't know how it works. Like I used to think that too, and I don't have an answer, so I'm not trying to debate, but I feel like the plant takes that nutrient and it converts it into a leaf. It's no longer phosphorus up there or potassium oh, yeah. up there. You do a tissue test and you will see a little more potassium and some other things, but the phosphorus is an energy source. It usually doesn't make it up in the plant, um, at least in alarming levels, even if you're not flushing and even you're using a lot. But I noticed overfeeding plants stresses them. And what I've noticed is they create micro seeds that you can't even tell. They're the beginning formation of like a cluster and any bit of moisture, it pops and crackles. And so you have little micro seeds, not even developed seeds. And to the average grower, you may not even notice it until you break down way inside and you see this little tiny piece of something. I noticed that snap, crackle, pop. If you ever have that happening, um, I really think that's possible. Um, but at the end of the day, I'd be growing like... I'd have advanced nutrients and other just, I was using the Lucas method and lots of different formulas out there. Um, the Lucas with the Floronova I actually kind of not liked, and that had kind of an organic goopiness to it. Maybe that was first step in that direction, but um, I would be feeding like my peppers and tomatoes and I'd be looking at the bottle like, well, fuck, do I have to flush my tomatoes or is it safe to eat? Or like, how does that work? You know? <laughs> And those questions started to pass off into the cannabis. And I started thinking, wouldn't it be better just to use something that I wasn't worried about? And the argument on the other side of the thing is that organics just makes those chemical nutrients on tap for the plants and they're in the same form. While I scientifically agree with that, I think there's definitely some differences in how that happens. Meaning if the plant has to interact with the soil to get the nutrient, to take it up, it's not being force fed where when you put that chemical nutrient in the water, it is forced to take it when it drinks. And so you can definitely over and underdo things a lot more you know, drastically mm -hmm. when it comes to hydro. Um, yeah, it's amazing the differences you can produce. They call it the phenotypic expression, whether it's just different nutrients or different environment, growing outdoors, indoors, you can dramatically change some herb based on the way you grow it. And across the board, all of our customers and uh, uh, you know everyone that I've known that have grown multiple ways, the argument usually isn't that soil doesn't taste better or that it isn't, you know, more naturally easier to grow better. Like on your first crop, you're going to have a higher terpene content than trying to learn how to grow hydro. But I will say there's some great hydro growers that learn how to get their shit right.
Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, though, I just prefer not to vision myself in like some white lab coat telling the plant what to do. I figure like overalls and saying, what do you want from me? How can I serve you? And it seems to be that difference in mindset that a lot of times causes that crossover to living soil. We're looking to be a steward of the plant instead of like a dominatrix, so to speak. Right. So, yep. so speaking on that, I remember watching one of your videos, you were talking about a, like just a little solo cup and your plant was so tall, yeah, branched out. And it was something with the lighting. You had a little special yep. talk about the lightings, how when you're doing some uh, clones or doing some something in veg, it doesn't need that full 100% HLG lighting, you can turn it down to 60. It will actually like a lower lighting. Yeah. Especially in that little cup. Like, I mean, imagine this, you're busy, you're thinking, you got lots to do. You're around your house, just kind of hanging, maybe in some sweatpants, cruising, doing stuff. You can go the whole day without eating. You're like, oh shit, I got to eat. I mean, I know not everybody's like that, but it's something that can happen. But I tell you what, you get up at 6am and you start swinging a hammer or something, you start digging a ditch. Like, your body's going to break you down and tell you, you need food now. You have to stop what you're doing. Your stomach's raging. You can't think straight. It's like need food. Your plants are similar, right? They're not stupid. They start getting one more of one thing. They're going to need the other. It's all about balance. And so you take a little tiny clone and you crank up the light. That's great. It'll be healthy for a few hours. The next day, you better have a plan for nutrition, for water, keeping up with that environment that you put it in. It's like asking a marathon runner to go in the desert and just go. And so when we're going to, when we know we're just going to keep them in this little tiny cup and we know that, Hey, we're looking at our flower room going, ah, it's going to be a few more weeks before I get to deal with those clones. I'm busy. The easiest thing to do is to lower the demand and just allow them to be lazy. You turn that light down. It lowers that desire to grow because it's not being force fed the light, which means that it doesn't have to transpire water, which means that. So if you picture a plant growing and it's got its stomata and it needs to open that to receive the light and start growing. Well, as soon as that happens, it can start to dehydrate. And so unless you keep the humidity perfect, now it's going to call for moisture out of that little tiny cup. And if you're not in there dripping on it or watering it or bottom watering it and doing a perfect job, it'll run out of water. Then it starts cascading down where it starts moving the leaves away and starts to get burned because it's not absorbing the nutrients of the water and avoiding all of that we just dim the light. And now it stays kind of like a house plant where you almost need to do nothing for weeks at a time, except for barely keep any water in there. And even if you overwater it, it's not like trying to grow so fast that it's hurting itself. It just kind of goes, ah, well, I'll just chill here for a little while. makes a huge difference. Um, and that's how we got such tall clones is because I kept on saying, you know, next week we'll get to that <laughs> and just leave the light low, give it a little bit of water. And if you really need to, you can use like some liquid fish, something that's kind of a, an all in one complete uh, formula and that'll keep everything you know, happy for the plant. So yeah, that goes back to, I used to just use uh, fluorescence when they were clones yep. or, or babies. I mean, it's, it's perfect for them. It doesn't push them too much. Uh, a lot of people have this swinging, uh, uh, this learning curve is the word I'm looking for when they go to LEDs because they're so bright. Yes. They don't know that and you just pay needs more. to be increased and you're, it's <clears throat> start them low and then they yes. slowly increase them up to maybe 90% when you go into transition. Yep. That's about where I'm at. And then <laughs> when they're in full blood and full, full budding and blooming, then I'll turn them up to hundred, but crank them down a little bit. Yep. And the, the number of hours in the day. So imagine this hundred percent light on 12 hours a day, hundred percent light on 24 hours a day. That's 200% light because you actually went to double the hours of light and we're trickle charging these plants. 
So 50% for 24 hours is the same as 100% for 12 hours. It's about the total light for the day or the daily lighting integral. And lowering that allows things to get a little bit easier on us. And you can grow higher quality. It's not so demanding. And this is just like an indoor back in the day. I mean, guys would grow sealed rooms and they find out, oh, I'm out of CO2. So guess what we do? Add CO2. Then you can add more nutrients. Then you can add more water. So supercharging things becomes harder. It's like driving a car a million miles per hour on the racetrack. If you're worried you're hitting the edges, just slow the fuck down and you will have a very healthy run. Then you can start to learn how to speed it up without hurting things. Um, and it, it, it does. It makes a huge, huge difference. So, uh, so we are about the 120 mark here. I think we could go ahead and probably wrap this up. Yeah, I, I can talk to you all day, man. This is fun. We could, we could keep going on and on. Yep. Um, so want to let the listeners know about the availability. Where are you located in Colorado? You're pretty much in, I know the way to grow is where I've stopped and got some of your yep. product before. Way um, to grow just ordered like a truckload of cubic footers. They'll be stocked up for the season. They got a 3.0 in our light soil. Um, you know, we've been really, we're a small brand. And so getting into the um, wholesale trade has been hard for us. The margins are lower. We got to make stuff quick, get a whole bunch on one pallet and get it out. And, you know, we weren't really geared up to do that. We don't have a billion dollars of funding. And so it may not be everywhere all the time, but the easiest way is to go to buildaswell.com, go to our store locator and just look up with the closest store to you. We have them all over the country that buy our products and then call the store first and just be like, Hey, you guys stocked up. Can I come down? Or if they're your local shop, just go visit, hang out and tell them to buy more build the soil. Yeah. Cause but, I've, uh, I've heard it. I've got on and store locator says they have it. But then when you get to the store, they say, Oh, well, we got to order it. Yeah. And you don't want to drive the, three hours the, to the local shop just cause you're stoked and then find out they don't have any. So call ahead. That usually helps. And then it helps us because now they're getting calls on build the soil, things like that. Um, but we are online at buildasoil.com. And one of the downsides, right. Is we have, tons of compost and rock dust in our soil. So it's not lightweight, which means it costs a little bit of money to ship it. Um, but realistically, uh, comparatively to going and buying bulk ingredients and mixing it yourself just to get a couple of bags, that's a lot cheaper. So a lot of our customers go buy like three or four bags at a time, have them mailed to their door, or they'll get one of our kits that comes on a pallet, or they'll split a pallet with a buddy and go in halvesies or whatever, or like with three people and they'll get a better rate on the soil just because it comes all at once on a pallet. Um, but in Colorado, we're on the Western slope. We're in Montrose, Colorado, which is in between Grand Junction and Telluride. So a lot of people that are over on this side, it's uh, further spread out, but it's a smaller world. So anyone in the Western slope, a lot of times we see those customers, they drive up from Durango, they come over from Grand Junction, they drive over from Denver. But Typically, when people aren't from Colorado, they call me and go, yo, I'm going to be in Colorado. I'm going to stop by and visit. I'm like, cool. Where are you going to be? They're like, I'm flying into Denver. I'm like, well, you're going to have to drive seven hours <laughs> over the Rocky Mountains in the middle of a snowstorm if you want to come see me. Um, but we love it when people stop by. They can see the in-store 10 by 10 grow. And it's been huge for us because many of these soil companies, living soil companies, they don't even grow or smoke. Some of them do, right? A lot of us are passionate about this, but to me, it's always been something to walk the walk and say, come to our store live, see the grow growing in action. And I'll show you what it looks like instead of saying, yeah, 10 years ago, my buddy used to grow and we just did the soil science or we just made a nutrient fertilizer company because of hemp or whatever. This is just what we do. I love cannabis. It's a big part of my life. And I've tried to cross over like we're doing house plants and other things, but a lot of us found gardening. We found food gardening. We found house plants because we loved cannabis and we thought, shit, exactly. I'm going to grow up all these plants. You know, I like the companion planting. It really got me into companion planting yep. and uh, the living soil beds and what I could put in there to increase the terpenes like basil or some marigold yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff, like 
hell the pest and hell with the nematodes. And yes. Uh, one other question. I know you do roll around to Canacons and go to different events. I've seen build a soil. I don't think I saw you there, but I, I know Martin was there. The guys from Rootwise, uh, miles from fermented plant extracts and i am going to be using the fermented plant extracts with this this run that i'm using i already top dressed with the 13 blend um i'm using a little bison compost that i got from grease mike walsh grease it's a pretty nice product so i'm doing a little tea with that but i'm going to use the fermented plant extracts with the 3.0 do you recommend going very light on the fermented plant extracts because on the bottles like 0.5 ounces to four ounces per gallon is what the uh -huh. mix says. Um, I do an really ounce like per gallon. An ounce. I do an ounce per gallon. If you have, my rule of thumb is if you have a hundred gallon thing of soil and you're just starting, you can go with the lowest dose and always go the lowest dose. I do to start I, off. No matter yeah. what, to start I recommend off that. anything yeah. ever. But then when you're trying to find your zone for what you like, I only go up to like four ounces a gallon if I've got a raging plant in a small container and I'm actually trying to get the ferment to feed the plant a little bit through the mm -hmm. soil. Normally what we're doing though, and there's some big benefits. When we first started making the Coots recipe, we used tons of oyster shell flour. It's one of the big ingredients. Also crustacean meal. And those are both calcium carbonate forms. And so when we had outdoor growers using our soils for the first time, they started using ditch water or well water. Well, the ditch water around here, full of bicarbonate. And so you water it in there and finally the biology releases this calcium. It says calcium carbonate and it rips off the carbon side and it has free form calcium for the plant. And the water comes in and goes, ha ha, calcium carbonate. And they reform. So we noticed that an acid in the water, not like pH in the water, but an acid to neutralize that bicarbonate fixed everything. And a lot of growers out here would use like vinegar on their orchard or sulfur injector systems at the big orchards. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes down to watering living soil, we still have all these calciums and all these things to release. And you start to realize, oh, my ferment is like 3.5 pH. It's a descaler, it like releases calcium. EM1, you could use it to like scale industrial equipment. And so that I think is part of the benefit. We're adding this like acidic ubiquitous fermentation that exists everywhere in nature in the sense that like, how do you make sauerkraut? You just go chop up cabbage with some salt and put it in a jar. Well, the lactobacillus is ubiquitous. It's already part of the picture. That's how it works. So when you take a ferment that's full of lacto, that's everywhere in nature, we're doing two things. One, I think we're like acidifying the water and we're helping cycle nutrients, but we're also adding this essence of life, which is death and decay. And that's why it smells. But that is what we're trying to do in the soil. We're trying to break down this organic matter into a more plant usable form. And so we're almost like Instead of waiting for the logs and the fire to create the fire, it's like putting lighter fluid on it. We get to go in there with a ferment and like release and cause nutrient cycling. And one of the things I remind myself of is how funny some of these lessons are in life. But um, on ICMAG, we're all talking about compost teas. And the talk was if you brew an anaerobic tea with ciliates and these other things in there and it had no, not enough oxygen, you could kill your plant. I've never seen that happen. You can brew a horrible compost tea and yeah, it may not lead to all the benefits that you wanted. So it was a waste of energy, but it never killed anything. And you'd still get growth and all the dead nutrients and stuff. It would just re-go aerobic in the soil and the soil would kind of consume that bad tea. Um, but when it comes down to the, the crowd, like the Ingham crowd that was teaching it at the time, they wouldn't look at the anaerobic stuff at all. They're like, that's bad. Good stuff is all full of oxygen. 
And then we had this ferment crowd that was like, yo, this stuff's dead and raunchy and it crushes. <laughs> and so I just love that, that lesson of life where you're like, one can be so right and the other can be right. And they can be diametrically opposed to each other and they still both work. And I remember EM1, the guy was like, hey, brew compost tea. And they just add a little EM1 at the end. That way you have both in there. And I was thinking, what? You're going to ruin it. But it works. And I feel like nature doesn't have these rules. They just have teams of biology that do jobs, whatever that may be. And typically that's cleaning up organic matter, decaying it, breaking it back down. I remember in science, originally we were taught nothing disappears. It just, it just goes into different form. So if you light something on fire, it's not gone. It's just gone into the ashes that are now in the sky spread everywhere into different gases that were off and released, but they're still in the universe. So when it comes to ferments, we're kind of tapping in there. We're taking already biologically broken down waste and allowing it to be ready for the plant. The other thing is it feeds the biology that's in there and the acidity of it. So there's like this trifecta there that somehow they just, they do definitely work. And I will say of the, of our customers that buy ferments because they're expensive for what it is. If you learn to make them on your own, they're practically free, but we all know having stinky stuff around the house at the right phase <laughs> all the time is like a shitty job. So it's nice if someone just bottles it for you, get to tap in. But at the end of the day, when we're using all these ferments, it's kind of like, do we want it to increase just the plant size, like used to be talked about, yield? Or do we want to have the best amount of resin, the best terpene, the best compounds? And so a lot of people that are growing for hash, that are pressing their own rosin and doing fresh frozen and all this stuff, they swear by adding KNF and ferments and some of these things. And I can't tell whether it's the chicken or the egg. Like I can't tell if people that are so heady, they just say you have to add that because it sounds good or whether they just know it produces better results. But over a decade of doing this and trying a lot of people's herb, like at these events, people bring us lots of flour to share mm -hmm. with us. Some of the best herb I've ever had has been by these growers that do some of their own natural fermentation products and they add this stuff to it and it it's noticeable. And so it's hard to ignore. And I think a lot of us end up in living soil because we try somebody's herb. That's so damn good. We're like, all right, how did you do that? I will copy everything. So, yeah. I, I go for smell, flavor, taste. That's yes. most important to me. I will, I will suffer my yield just a little bit just yeah. to make sure. We can always is. tinker with yield later, but if you have no flavor and no, like what the fuck's the point? Yeah. It's just, I, lo I love the, uh, like you said, I can't smoke the uh, orange and lemony ones all the time. But it is an occasional thing. I like it. It just makes my mouth salivate. It's like a yeah. like a candy almost sometimes. Yep. But I lean more towards the skunky, gassy, the the that. But when yep. you make tinctures out of that, they don't taste very good. No. So the tinctures. And that's a balance. I like are, if you like having some fuel all the time, you can balance it with tinctures and other different stuff. And I feel like for whatever reason, when I talk to really experienced smokers, a lot of us gravitate towards that fuel. And I can't tell if some of us are just more mature. So we came out of an era when like OG Kush was the fucking like the best, like, you know, and so having that fuel was somehow reminiscent of like the best, but I don't think that's it. I honestly think that as we get a little bit um, higher tolerance, those really fuely ones that come with these theols and like these, mm -hmm. I don't think it's just terpene, something that really like it helps. It's potent. I, like, so I think when you have a high tolerance, you end up liking the strongest shit. So. I like the caryophylline and humulene. It's one of the sesquiterpenes. It's just, you yeah. know, part, part cannabinoid and part terpene. It's like the intermediate. I think that is the synergistic part yeah. of the plant that when you got more of the sesquiterpenes, which have that dank smell and uh -huh. feel, that's, uh, I think it just brings back memories, like you said. <laughs>
Yeah, absolutely. It man. just makes you feel more comfortable because of that spell, that nostalgia and that yeah. memory. And it, a lot of it is the smell. The smells create so much more effect than people people realize. Yeah, we eat with our nose too. I mean, you go to a, have a good meal. It's you want the trifecta. You don't want it just to just to have good texture or just to have a decent taste. You want it to have the right temperature, yep. the right texture, the right aroma, the right taste. That completely transcends eating into what becomes an experience, one that's worthy of paying for and going out with friends. And I think cannabis is similar. And we all have this thing where it's like. We're going to share some herb with a friend. We just want to like, I don't know a lot of other things, but with cannabis growers, I've noticed they will take their very best herb to give it to their friend because they would never want to like embarrassingly taste their worst nug that they grew and give it to a buddy. They're willing to give their best first because they just want to put their best foot forward and say, I grew that, you know, but like it all doesn't turn out this way, but yeah, you're like, really like this. But you get the good shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jeremy, next time I am going to come down, I'm going to, uh, go down and hang out with Miles at his uh, his farm and hang out cool. and do an interview with him, do some videotape, and definitely going to stop by Montrose. Uh, yes. If you're ever in Denver, let me know. Uh, also, if you want to go skiing in Breckenridge area, if you're ever in that area, let me know. We can go skiing cool. and hit the slopes. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you having me on today. This has been a blast. And like, please stop by if you come to town. It'd be great to meet you in person. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, highly, highly uh, respect everything you're doing. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and explaining to everybody what, what you got going on and how to use your products. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, Jeremy, you have a great day and we'll be in touch soon. Okay. All right. Peace. All right. Peace. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to today's episode. I'd like to give a shout out to Bill at the Grow Gen in Conifer. He's always hooked me up. He's got the cheapest CO2 you can find in the state. I believe it's at cost. He's got soil at cost. Uh, If you're ever in the conifer area, make sure to stop in and give Bill a shout out and uh, support local. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to Miles Filippelli from Fermented Plant Extracts. He hit me up with a link to uh, hook up with Jeremy for this little episode. Greatly appreciated. I know he's going to be putting on some fermented plant extract classes in July here in Denver. So if you're interested, make sure to hit him up on his Instagram at Fermented Plant Extracts or weed should taste good. Thanks, Miles. Peace.